Hello, and welcome to the Inspired Minds podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed, and always shall be, hopefully, your gracious and grateful host. How's everybody doing out there today? <laughs> I just realized that intro just there was basically the Mr. Movie Phone guy, if anybody remembers who the fuck that guy was. Hello, and welcome to Movie Phone. Press one for speed, featuring Tanner Reeves, Batman and Robin Forever, or Casino, because it was the 90s. I And actually, true story, I met that guy. I was at AOL, it was a recall-owned, and I met him. I met Mr. Movie Phone, and we kind of movie phoned off to each other. Basically, we just did it back and forth. It was amazing. It was like talking to a mirror. But I say this only to say that this is kind of my thing. I love to uh, talk to brilliant people as I continue to do. And I've been thinking a lot about my style that I don't even know what I'm doing kind of, but I do. And there's a bunch of people that have kind of influenced me. And just I thought I'd rattle them off as a narcissist, as that I apparently am now. I want to just explain this because this is fun for me. So Dick Cavett, and I don't think anybody's going to get any or all of these, but Dick Cavett. 70s interviewer, bar none, the, the master of disaster, incredibly quiet and shy. That is not me, clearly. A guy named Hugh Hauser, who was in Los Angeles, and he was a legend. And for like 20 years on public access, he would do these um, he would do these amazing episodes where everything was incredible. He would go to like Palm Springs and go to a restaurant. This is the greatest food I've ever had. And he was sweet. And he kind of lived in that radical amazement thing that I may have been mentioning on some other shows. It's just everything is incredible. Um, Johnny Fever from WKRP in Cincinnati, kind of halfway uh, Wolfman Jack, maybe. Oh, uh, Don Rickles. That's aspirational. I cannot be the Rick, but it's good. Uh, Howard Beale from a, a movie called Network, where because I kind of have the side at me where I'm like, everything's going to end. And oh, my God, we're in trouble. That's Howard Beale. If anybody gets that reference, there's a little bit of that in me. Uh, Spalding Gray, an amazing monologuist back in the 90s, uh, just a legend and, and very, very inspirational for me with storytelling. Uh, George Burns, I like old comics. Weird Al, because he's Weird Al. Garrison Keeler, who was just boring as hell, NPR guy, he did this thing for like years and years. And he was just, he talked like this, and everything was in Lake Winnemucca or Lake Wobegon. But he did a story kind of shtick, and I like that. And finally, Mel Brooks in uh, History of the World Part 1, specifically because he calls himself a stand-up philosopher. And I think that is everything. So, enough about me, because God knows that was too much already. <laughs> enough about me, because we are going to be introducing we. I'm using the royal we as me. I'm cracked out tonight. Merrily Albert is a interviewee that I did recently that, oh my God, these people I'm getting are just incredible human beings. I'm very fortunate. And so Marilee, she her first job in the film business was on, on uh, Godfather 3, and she was Francis Ford Coppola's philosophy tutor in Rome. And she had a novel about it. It's out. It's called A Tutor. And then she was an Italian TV and director and development executive, and she's been writing for film and uh, this incredible uh, story coming out. Actually, it looks like it's coming together called Sex, Greed, Money, Murder, and Chicken Fried Steak. It is unbelievable, crazy crime story. But the greatest thing about this conversation before I close up shop here is that we ended up talking a lot about mental health. She is the founder of One Village Green, which is a nonprofit that promotes mental health and wellness in kids. And they do it through content creation and lobbying. And this lady is a firebrand. I was completely enwrapped. 
mental illness and the and and promoting it in a strange way to get the word out about it. It's my passion. It's all I want to do with my life. And it was an amazing discussion with her. So, as I always like to say, I hope you enjoy this as much as I did making it. I think I have like a signature send-off now. I like this. Maybe I can pull my earlobe like Carol Burnett did. Um, I hope you enjoy it, folks. I did. I just say it again. Bye. Hello and welcome, everybody. Podcast audience that is the Inspired Minds, folks. Please welcome Marilee Albert. Say hello, Marilee, to the podcast audience. Hello, podcast audience. Uh, fun fact, I just did uh, a false intro, got her name completely wrong. Uh, I was not triggered bit. in the slightest. Was not triggered. Dick Cavett wouldn't have done that. Not my heroes. We don't know. We don't know if he would have. That's true, actually. So thank you very, very much for your time. I'm extraordinarily excited to do this, but I will always start the show off with the first question. Always the same question. Here we go. It is... What was the first thing that you can remember when you were a kid that inspired you? Was it a film or a book or a comic book or a person? That inspired me? Yeah. Probably the little house books at the Northridge Library and also the Wizard of Oz on TV. Wow. I mean, I was born in the 90s or was it the zeros? I can't remember. But, you know, long time ago. I think it was like 2000 that I was born. Anyway, I can't remember. But the those are the things that I that I could probably you know speak to. There may have been others. Why Wizard of Oz? I mean, it's an obvious answer. Oh, I'm curious because it's brilliant and it's magical. And when I was a kid, you know, we only had dial-up internet. No, I'm only kidding. It, you know, it, it was magical and it was on at a special time of year. And it's a beautiful movie. And she's dreaming of a place. And I grew up in the suburbs. You know, there's probably a lot of reasons why it inspired me. And it also probably wasn't The Wizard of Oz. I was a very, very big reader as a kid. It was probably a book. There was a very strange book I read at a young age called The Wind on the Moon. Huh. And I, we were on a road trip in Canada and I left it at a restaurant and I made my parents drive an hour round trip to get this book back. No, I left. Yeah. And, and, and you know what? It wasn't even at the restaurant anymore. It was at uh, a museum. No, we had to go back to the museum to purchase the book from the gift shop in Winnipeg, Canada. Wow. True story. To repurchase the book. Most people don't know that book. It's a very strange book. What? I just, I, I'm impressed with the dedication because clearly it meant something to you. And that's yeah, why. Yeah, but I can you imagine the rest of my family tolerating this, including my two siblings? <laughs> no, no. Although, if I may, and this is this this is going to be about you mostly, don't worry. But I, but, but I may Thank offer you. This, I may offer this bit of heartbreak for you. I just remember this, quite frankly. Thanks for triggering me because I just recalled this that I had this favorite little teddy bear named Daddy Bear when I was like five, and I love fucking Daddy Aww. Bear. And my parents were going. We were we were moving from uh, L.A. up to San Jose. And are you, and my dad's like, you know, we're at a hotel and we get ready to go. And he puts daddy bear up at the top of the hood and we get to back to the, uh, the new place in San Jose. And I go, where's daddy bear? And daddy bear is gone. And my dad drove oh. all the way back, wasn't there all the way up. And I had to explain to me that daddy bear was gone. I was traumatized ever since. And I am the man that I am now as a result. <laughs> oh, daddy bear. I feel so sad about that. Daddy bear was heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. Oh. But we all have those childhood heartbreaking stories, don't we? Yeah. 
It's sad. But I'm so I want to make this, we'll make this a little happier, at least in the very beginning. We'll see where it goes next. But <laughs> tell me, tell me why, let's say, tell me why the Wizard of Oz carried you through to where you are now. Is there a line there? I didn't say that it carried me through. You asked me what was an original inspiration. Well, no, I'm serious though. Because why I still think about it. um, It's one of those memories from childhood. You know, uh, we watched it every year. It wasn't religious. So it wasn't like, I don't know. I really, you know what? It was, it was, it was a fond childhood memory. Probably it was on, I think it might've been on either Thanksgiving sometime when maybe there wasn't school. So it was sort of a pleasant, time and it's a very magical movie and i read all those books you know the the oz, the books the oz books you know the yeah. whole series of books so i mean you know i could probably probably tell you that probably point to books as being a bigger inspiration for me as a kid uh-huh. than movies but why not the wizard of oz what a classic i will stand on a stack of bibles and say that somewhere over the rainbow was the greatest song in history you know i'm not going to argue with you uh, and that melody I would sing it, but my husband would kill me. <laughs> Not that he'll ever listen. <laughs> um, All right, anyway. Let me hear. Uh, that was pretty good. I'm not bad. I got some talent. Um, but yeah. okay, so you took that inspiration, whatever that was, and then tell me how you got to, let's say, tell me how you got to at least be a philosophy tutor on the set of Godfather 3 for Francis Ford Coppola for the film. I know. That's a, that's one of the all-time good stories, isn't it? I'd imagine. It's a colorful 20-something girl story, and it's it's such a great, fun story that even I like it <laughs> as a 20-something girl story. Like, I even like my own story. Pretty because good. I was living in Rome, which is automatically colorful, Yep. and I was a Yale philosophy student, um, which is probably less colorful. And I was wandering around the piazzas at Campo dei Fiori. I don't know if you've been to Rome. I have. Many, I have actually, yeah. Okay, so you know Campo dei Fiori. I do. Do you know the Vineria? I certainly do, actually. Oh my God, Jeff, I am so happy right now. Because <laughs> I, most people, when I say that, they go, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I love Rome. Okay, oh so picture this. I want you to picture for a moment La Vineria, Campo dei Fiori. I'm having a Prosecco on a date with a British. English teacher. <laughs> they were all teaching English. These No, English student slash teacher, whatever, this kid. And of course, you know, he had no money. So it was like the date was like a glass of Prosecco. And he sure. was hoping like maybe like I wouldn't cost any more than that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he went to the bathroom and this dude came up to me. And, you know, I, I'm, I have a tendency to stretch out the story because I actually wrote it in a novel. But I will tell you the shortest version of it. He was out there checking out me, you know, and saying all this stuff. And he told me I could have a screen test for the movie wow. and was I an actress and all this stuff. And I always just said yes to everything. Cause I was, you know, a free spirit and I was an, an artist and I was there in Rome to make experimental films and sort of just live my life. So I said, yes. And then he gave me this scribbled piece of paper with Francis's name written in, in with correct, incorrect spelling F O R by the way, not even spelling correctly. And that I should show up the next day at Chinechita, but I had to like get, I knew I had to get like a fake resume put together and stuff. So I, I asked if I could come the day after that. And he said, sure. He didn't care. You know, sure. long story short, that's how I became Francis Coppola's philosophy tutor. It's a longer story, but it involved that initial thing. Hey, I love it. I love the little stories like that. That's, inc- <laughs> that's so- It's all in my novel, The Tutor, T-U-T-O-R. You can, they, your, reader, your listeners can order it on Amazon. You, and oh- if they want, I'll go, if they're in LA, I will drive to their house and sign it for them. 
And I as will long as they don't live in a bad neighborhood and there's parking. I, I was going to add on. Actually, I was going to add on to that. And I will also drive. And I'm, I'm not even in LA. I will drive to wherever you are as well. And I will autograph it just for you. Okay, cool. Where are you? I forgot. Uh, San Jose, California. Okay, so drive to LA. I'll meet you like wherever and That's I'll cool. sign it. <laughs> but you have to order it on Amazon. It helps my Amazon rating. <laughs> there you go. There you yeah, go. Or you can go directly to the publisher, Rare Bird, and they will also send you a copy if you order it from them. So I want to know a couple of things about this first. Number one is why philosophy and what did you get out of it? That's an excellent question, and I can I can answer that. I would imagine you can. not. I decided to study philosophy because I wanted to study something that I knew I would never read ever again on my own. Because it's way too difficult. I, I loved novels. I loved reading literature, but I didn't really, and I also loved reading literature and I didn't really want to study literature. I liked okay. it as a pleasure. I also knew that I would continue to read literature as I went through life. And it, you know, my, my analysis was actually correct. Uh, the only time I ever really read philosophy ever again was when I was tutoring Francis Coppola because I needed to sort of refresh my memory a bit. Philosophy is very, very difficult to read, especially the stuff I was studying in, as a college kid, you know, Kant, Hegel, Heidegger, Husserl, Derrida. Right. These, these texts are very dense. If anyone's ever picked up the Critique of Pure Reason, it is not, well, it's not, you know, Sartre. It's, it's a dense, analytical, mathematical, complicated book that, like, it took an entire year with a professor to sort of an, analyze it, and I probably still barely understood it. You know, so I'm glad that I did that uh, for that reason. I also was interested in being artistic and making movies and those sorts of things. And um, I just decided that I could learn that later, that I would take advantage of what I could best take advantage of in college. That's why I studied philosophy. I love the fact that you did an entire degree as a challenge. Yeah. And I wanted to learn, you know, I, I wasn't exposed to philosophy. My, I try to tell my kids that now and like, they don't understand what it would be like to not be exposed to things. I was in Los Angeles. I grew up in the suburbs in Granada Hills, public high school with, you know, it was a, it was an okay school. It just didn't have any extras. I didn't, you know, and in order to study things, you had to go to the library and like really make an effort. I wasn't exposed. Right. So I had one of those, like, you know, you sit in in the study group and the, you know, they discuss, they describe the, the object in itself. What is that chair over there when you're not observing it through your, you know, uh, the construct of space time in your brain. Now, I honestly never considered that ever before. Like there's a chair that you're not observing the object in itself, a priori versus a posteriori knowledge and all this stuff. I never even crossed my mind philosophically to think that way. Mm -hmm. I didn't take, I didn't take enough shrooms, I guess, in high school. I, I was I didn't do any drugs in high school, so I never had those moments. <laughs> I didn't do the LSD stuff. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> so anyway, right to the source. Right to the source. Can't. Yeah, I mean, I I wanted to learn it. It wasn't just that you know it was a challenge. It was what made the most sense. Although now, if I were to go back to college, I would probably do history. I think that history is a very pertinent subject. I, I you know what. With my maturity level, which is still low now, but still higher than I was at 18, I would do history. Why? Because it, it's just so important for, as a human being, all of us need to know history. We need to study it so as not to repeat the bad stuff. Yeah. Seems like that's, that's happening a lot now these days. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Although, again, I'm more likely to study and read history now than I would be philosophy. Philosophy is just way too dense, scientific, and difficult, especially phenomenology, which is what I was focusing uh. on. It's just too much. I, I don't even want to read it. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't, I have a couple of my books still from college and I have the critique of pure reason. I don't think I've glanced at it in years and years and years. So tell me what it's like teaching that to Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> well, it was fun. I was nervous initially. I was a young girl. You know what? It, it devolved into, you know, just hanging around gossiping. I had a part in the movie of, that he made at the time and um, we were just kind of sitting around shooting the shit, you know, um, philosophy sort of settled back into the rear, but initially it was, I was extremely nervous, as I said, sure. and he was, he was a very intrigued student, but he didn't do his reading cause he was making a movie. <laughs> I'll give him, I'll give him a pass. He was making a movie. He did. It was funny. I mean, people, people couldn't believe it. I'd show up on the set with a little briefcase and people like Don Novello and some of these actors were like, who's that? And and the guy that was Francis's driver slash friend with the little beret, this dude from San Francisco was a poet who he gave him a job to. He'd say, oh, that's the philosophy tutor. <laughs> and they were just like, what? I would not, you know, and I was like a young girl with like long brown hair and like a mini skirt and stuff. It, it was, it was, it was too much. I mean, I, you know, and then I found out later that, you know, what people thought I was. Please tell me the guy actually did have a beret. I swear. I'm not uh, making that up. Yep. There you go. Just make it, just checking. <laughs> did, he, did he go like this too? <laughs> no, he wasn't French or anything like that. He was this dude from San Francisco that Francis knew from the community and, you know, a poet, a really interesting yeah. guy who just needed a job. So he hired him as his driver in Rome. And he was sort of my friend, I guess. I don't even, I mean, it was like three lifetimes ago, Jeff. I understand. The only reason I remember a lot of it is I just wrote a novel about it. Which you did called The Tutor, as a matter of fact, which apparently is on Amazon, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it's so two minutes ago, Jeff. <laughs> I'm just making sure we know this. I'm gonna, Please. I'm going to keep pumping direct your, this. Direct your listeners to my Amazon page. It's it's not doing very well. I need like a couple sales that will help my uh, sales ranking and make me feel a lot better about myself. Do the right thing, people. Like Spike Lee said, ladies and gentlemen. Do That's the right, right. Do the right thing. I did just turn in a second novel, so cross everything slash yeah, hashtag. <laughs> yeah, what's that all about? Talk about that. That is, okay, take Big Little Lies. Cross it with Desperate Housewives and Breaking Bad, and you get my novel. Whoa. You got the elevator pitch down. I have the elevator pitch down. Impressive. It's a crime, psychological crime thriller. Care to go into any more details? Set in Hidden Hills, set in Mommy Land. It's about greed, envy, sloth. It's a moral tale. What would you do to to maintain your life? It's about sociopathy. It's, It's about so many things, and I love that genre. I really wanted to try to crack that genre, and and I, I love it. I love reading it. I love watching it. I love it in film. I love it in books. I love it in true crime. Um, I love every aspect of it. I'm fascinated by psychology. You know, you and I talked about that, and hence I'm also fascinated by abnormal psychology. So it's it's meant, and I'm also you know I wanted to write something you know that would be commercial, but also something that would interest me. Yeah, and unlike the tutor, it's not all about autobiographical, but it, it has elements of my life. I mean, you know, I, I've been raising kids in the suburbs all these years. So I hope that I've achieved something in it. I don't know. Who knows? I'm sure it'll, well, it, it could just never even get published, Jeff. So hopefully it'll work out. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to something you sec- uh, said a second ago, that the tutor was obviously an autobiographical thing, right? Yes. But 
when you write fiction, I would imagine, and you alluded to this at least, that you would even subconsciously pour yourself into those characters anyway. 100%. But when people read the Tudor, they don't realize quite how autobiographical it is. And unfortunately, now they're going to read a book and they're going to think it's more autobiographical than it actually is. And that's not going to be good for me because, you know, husbands are being killed and all kinds of terrible yeah. things. People are cheating and lying. And I mean, it's a, it's a mess. So hopefully people, I, I don't, I've come to the age where I don't care what people think, but it, as an artist, you, you have to not care okay. so much. I love the fact that you said as an artist, because that's really what this podcast is also about. It's about the muse. Mm-hmm. It's about the blank page. But it's what about, mm-hmm. it's really what it means to be an artist. And what I I am one for fortunately and unfortunately sometimes. Yeah, I know. Because we think differently, right? We see things completely differently than others, which is what helps us create this individual expression of whatever it is the fuck we want. And But with that comes sometimes a price. And that price is- It's, it's a big price. Yeah. What? I, I was just going to say that sometimes that price comes with mental illness. Mm. You know? And hmm. that is really what the heart of what I wanted to speak to you about. And mm-hmm. we talked earlier a second ago before we recorded kind of about the background on this. But I want to talk about One Village Green. I really do because I, mm-hmm. I, I want to get into what that looks like, how that works. And I know specifically that you can kind of working on – it says here the exploration of the rise in teen suicide and overdose. I've seen that oh. too many times. It, the statistics, Jeff, are staggering. Staggering. Do you want to know what one statistic that just, I'm sure you know it. I mean, you're studying the same stuff. Um, For the last approximately 10 years, suicide rates in youth, and they define youth as approximately age 15 to 25, you know, give or take. And um, it's gone up, uh, you know, 60% since 2007. And these statistics were looked at before the pandemic. Right. Right. So it's a catastrophe. And we have a rise in drug overdoses. We have a rise in deaths. You know, some of that is the fentanyl. We have a dearth of mental health professionals. Correct. Uh, We have a problem with our insurance companies. And that is going to be my crusade. It's really, really a great American tragedy. And people need to wake up because it's affecting the homeless problem. It's affecting the mass shooting problem. It's affecting every aspect of our life and our collective well-being is essential. And what I mean is the mental health of our youth, whether you're a parent or not, is essential to the collective well-being of all of society, all of society. And I don't need to tell you, Jeff, the brain is an organ, (laughs) just like the kidneys, just like the heart. (laughs) We need to stop the madness. It's out of control. You can't even find a therapist for your son or daughter as a parent. And not only that, but when you do find one, you know, be, be prepared to spend $300 an hour. Okay. So even if you have insurance, I mean, it's, it's a mess. And I, and you and I talked about it right before we started recording. Don't get me started. I do have the one village green podcast that I'm developing and I've, I, I'm about to upload it. I've done about six or seven episodes so far. Great. It's a mess. I've spoken to people. I've learned a lot of things. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a this is a passion of mine. My for many many years, my entire life. Everybody has people in their families. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, who struggled, but it also doesn't take um, a degree in rocket science to wake up in the morning and read an article here and there. 
um, it's it's a it's a growing calamity, and I'm not using these words um, with hyperbole. It's an actual growing crisis, and I'm happy that you're getting your degree because we don't have enough. We don't have enough people I, to help. I completely, obviously, wholeheartedly, with everything within me, agree with you. And mm-hmm. what is just so – this is just so heartbreaking because in this country, we defund mental health. Bye-bye. You know? Hey, guys, you want uh, you want lower property taxes? Sure. How about the mentally ill? Fuck them. Disabled. Fuck them. Well, right? Jeff, it's – it's so unacceptable that, um, you know, I'm preparing our army, right? We need lawyers. We need lobbyists. Yeah. And I have people, some of them, but we, we need to go and change the laws. Okay, 100%. We're not going to be able to make an insurance company not greedy, but we're going to make a law to prevent them from not paying on par with other services. As an example, and this is another scary statistic, uh, approximately... Ninety percent of psychiatrists don't take insurance, okay? Wow! But it's the flip. It's the flip on those internists and people like that. Although more and more they're not taking insurance. If you have a heart problem or a stomach problem, you can go to the doctor. If you have insurance, you can get treated, and it's not going to be a disaster. But if you have a, a, a need for a therapist or a psychiatrist, or you have a really acute situation at home and your kid needs a bed somewhere, uh, you know, or an adult too, uh, good luck. If you don't want to spend 60K, want to, most people don't have 60K sitting around, whether they want to or not. So it's a growing catastrophe and it's actually unacceptable. And it's, I can make an argument that it's inhumane. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to make that argument, Jeff. You do. I'm going to take our little army with you because you're in yeah. the army. Yeah. And we're going to go straight to, I don't care who, the president of the Supreme Court, the state of California. And we're gonna we're gonna make sure that the laws are protecting the the organ of the body that's being ignored. It's crazy. It's it's actually so crazy. I I don't even have words to put. I I mean I do have words, but it it, it makes it 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 is it is it is mind bending. And people talk about stigma. You know this whole thing. We have a lot of celebrities now that are trying to break stigma, but until our institutions break stigma, yeah. it doesn't matter if all the all the people in the world go. Well, I don't care if someone's mentally ill. That's fine. Well, if 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 the institutions if I'm not going to name all the institutions that stigmatize mental illness, we all know we have the military, we have legal, we have all these different institutions that are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They were treated for depression. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, I would personally rather have someone who's been treated than someone who's not been treated. Okay. So we have an actual problem in every element of mental health care. Um, and it's, and it's spreading out like a broken sprinkler all over all of society. I told I, you not to let me rant. <laughs> no, you're I mean, preach, right? Like, but let me get on your soapbox with you here for a heartbeat. Please. What also, see, the thing about the stigma, I, I realized this a while ago. So as I mentioned before this, before we started recording, I'm bipolar. Um, I had MDD, major depressive disorder. Thank you, for being, thank you for being so open. It helps oh. people. What was the other one? Well, at first it was MDD, uh, major depressive disorder. Yeah, I, I, you have to say it slower because you said it too fast. I'm sorry. I do tend to do that. Hence the bipolar. I'm just kidding. What? Uh, but no, I, I'm I'm proud. No, to say, say it again. N what? Sorry, major depressive disorder, MDD. Oh, MDD. Okay, MDD. Right. My my bad. Got it. And then I went manic after uh, my wife died, and then like everything went to shit. And so 
I'm very open about my experiences about everything because it's important for me to educate because psychoeducation is a big deal. But I will say this as well. When it comes to the stigma, I've told my clients just kind of recently, I kind of thought about this, and I said that when you have cancer, right, and you've got a lesion on your arm, people can go, oh, I see there is cancer. There is a lesion there. You must have cancer, right? But when you have mm-hmm. a mental illness, the lesion is inside the skull. So you don't see the disease, but you then blame the symptoms because you don't know the part of the disease. You're too lazy. Why aren't you getting out of bed? Well, mm-hmm. I have MDD. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know, know people that, have no understanding, people have no understanding. Right. But even if you don't know that you don't have that disease and you internalize all the things that they say negatively about you. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest part because you're never oh. going to say that to somebody. You're lazy. You can't get out of bed because you have cancer. That never happens. No, they don't. No, they don't. Another thing that I think we need to understand about stigma is that it goes back to, in my opinion, this is almost a um, tribal thing in that the society casts out the mentally ill tribally because it's, 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 it weakens the herd. And if you have an injury, for example, they can repair it and eventually you're back to the herd, right? But if the crazy people, quote unquote, you got to cast them out because they're going to take you all down. That's just a theory. I'm sure somewhere it's written or maybe there's, it's not. There's a, there's a slight twist to that though, actually, that the, uh, the Native American shaman or the Native Americans would take people who were manic and make them shaman. Yes, because see? they were in touch with something else. Yeah. I got I want to be a shaman. I got crazy yeah. hyper religious when I was gone manic, and that's oh yeah. What one thing people don't understand, and you do, you've been through it, is that mania often manifests as religious uh, something a fervor. There's oftentimes a, the good and evil, God. People see God, and in some, like you said, in some societies and times of life, um, people instead of putting you in a loony bin, they'll. Uh, put you on a pedestal and uh, or you can start a cult. It's very complex mental illness. It, it's a it's very a, complex thing. Very strange. I tell people all the time, it's like being on meth. Sure. You don't sleep mania. for days. That's why it's so hard to get rid of it because it's yeah. addictive. Well, and the problem with mania is that nobody wants to be told they're manic. Well, when you're manic, yeah. I mean, first of all, when you're manic, that's not when you seek treatment. And that's, again, a problem for bipolar is they seek treatment at the, the depressive side and then they get treated with antidepressants, which are like pouring oil on a mania. Bingo. A manic depressive person, a bipolar person should not be given an antidepressant, usually. Well, and the brain is so complex, you know? One, one pill is going to affect somebody in a completely different way. Other person. Totally, totally. It's so complex. And another thing to keep in mind, and again, I'm not a mental health professional. I just, I'm a wannabe one. Um, another thing <laughs> is that not only does it affect everybody differently, and every single chemical that goes into everyone's body affects everyone differently, but psychiatrists and, and, and other mental health professionals are not brain, they're not mind readers. Yeah. They, there really is a way that a patient can control not always, but to some extent, um, you know, how people respond to them and what treatment they get or don't get. It's, it's a great tragedy, uh, mental health. It's always been. And um, we, we have enough capacity now intellectually in our society as a collection to uh, alleviate a lot of suffering. But we need to educate. I hate to say it, but we're not, we're not educating. I hate to use the word the masses because I don't know what that means. I'm, I'm in the masses but it, it's it's our elected officials, it's our it's our institutions that need to change. It's our laws that needs to change first. Yes, yes. But the problem with this, honestly, is 
the common clay, as I will refer to them, which Mel Brooks used in Blazing Saddles, perfectly, I might add, mm. those people will not be changed. I am so, I am so, I am so dark on this whole thing lately. The whole concept of empathy, which is crucial for recovery and recognize and, and being mm. able to recognize mental mm. illness, that mm. is a lost art. Gone. Bye. 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 Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a lost art in every aspect of society. But individually, if you've struggled, right, you got to find those people. Um, it's that's why art is so valuable. I mean, even just getting back to it. Even for me, I have a sort of maybe a sense of like a fear of loneliness. I'm like, well, but if you're always writing a book, you always have something to do. You always have something to chew over in your head. Mm-hmm. Meaning. You always have a, an activity. What? Meaning. Meaning what? Meaning. As if you have meaning in your life. Purpose. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Vision. Yes. You have meaning. And it, it, it for me personally, when I have a project – yeah, it, it it gives my my day and my my weekend or any moment of isolation or a feeling of loneliness. It gives me a feeling of a calm, feeling of purpose because creating is that way for an artist, right? Like you always know. I mean, I I used to paint when I was a kid. I don't even think it really matters how you express yourself. It's extremely therapeutic, and I and that's why they do things like art therapy in mental hospitals yeah. and writing therapy. Absolutely. Matter of fact, my thing, to be quite frank with you, that I'm I'm trying to implement is something I just kind of started to work on, because for me, storytelling is it a thousand percent. It has got me through so many traumas, so many tragedies, so mm-hmm. many this, this, and this. Just tell mm-hmm. my story. Tell my story. It doesn't matter which one it is. Mm-hmm. I have a billion stories that I have in my life now because I've learned how to mm-hmm. codify them. And I have another podcast mm-hmm. that actually codifies those. That's how this this one came before or came after the other one. I started a year ago, and that's just mm-hmm. my stories. Part of my Medium account are these stories. And why I say this is because I fervently believe the best way to get meaning or purpose out of your life is through storytelling, and specifically this. If you can get somebody to tell a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end about anything, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. you can ask them, okay, great. Why did you tell me this story? What, what was important about it for you? You can extract the meaning from that particular event, that particular story, that there are a billion flying around us all day long, but we don't know it yet. Once you figure that out, then you can start extracting meanings left and right. And I bring this up specifically because have you have you read the book by Victor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning? Oh, absolutely. There you go. That's yeah, it. I have friends that are developing that right now. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. We'll talk about that. Yeah. That book changed my life. Changed A my life. A lot of people. Yeah. You know, yeah. To, to be able Not to surprising. find that kind of meaning out of trauma, and which is I that's mm-hmm. what I experience, and that's why I do this now. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'm completely do you serious. Want to tell, do you want to tell me again about, like, what what was the timeline of this? Had yeah. you had any me- mental health, um, acute mental health episodes before that? No. Um, I was uh, depressed. I mean, I was actually extremely suicidal up until my wife uh, herself committed suicide uh, eight years ago. And Did I've been you in and out of share your suicide? Say that again? Sorry. I've been in and out of hospitals since before my wife died. Um, as a kid, uh, like when you uh, say as a kid, how, what uh, age? First attempt was kind of at seven, then it was 18, then six, actually 16, 18, 25 had a gun incident going on. Um, almost did, almost did that. King, uh, gun went off actually. Um, and then in, uh, a couple other times after that, I mean, really serious stuff, right? When you say first attempt, you mean first suicide attempt? Yeah. At age seven? Uh, yeah. Debatable, but yeah, basically. Yeah. 13 oh. for sure. No, I've had a long history with this. 
Um, oh. And I will tell you this actually too, you know, one thing that really chaps my hide because I've been into, I've been into so many 5150 holds that I've actually lost track over time. It's either like six or seven. And those places are horrible because there's oh. a, there's an uptick in suicide rates after you get out post discharge suicide from these horrible places. That's so? Yeah. hundred percent. Go look it up. hundred percent. What, where is your family now? They're in the same area as you? San Jose originally. Yeah. So really quick, what happened was, and you know, my, my wife died on the, in, on Easter Sunday, 2013, I went manic. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was manic because I had previously been diagnosed with mania. So I was like undiagnosed for like about five years, kind of going back and forth. Um, mm. Lost everything, went through just psychotic trauma. I mean, it was absolutely, it was a mixed, a mixed state. So it was like depression and you know, mania and complex grief and PTSD of an unheard quality. Um, mm. I was in the wounded warriors. So those guys invited me in. I'm not military, you know, it was an honor. And I learned about honor, I learned about respect. I learned about myself. I learned about therapy. I learned about modality. How did you get involved with wounded warriors? A guy knew uh, how, what had happened was so big, quite frankly, that a lot of people knew about it, even outside of my circle. So mm. I, Got in. So a guy came into my house one day and he's like, I'm with the Wounded Warriors. You're coming with us. Oh, Jeff. I didn't know what I was doing. But it is. Mm. But to answer your question, long story short, um, it took me, I'd say, about seven years or so, maybe six, to really kind of get my feet back on. Oh, you are an actual survivor. Yeah, no shit. You're an inspiration. <laughs> what? I just laughing. I said, yeah, no shit. <laughs> I can't even believe that, that, I, that I stumbled into meeting you when I've been seeking out in my mind – I wanted to seek out a survivor to work with me, not just the mental health professionals, but a survivor. There was the guy that jumped off the bridge in San Francisco Famous. and has become a very big activist. I'm sure you've heard of him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can't watch that movie and I was for like, reasons, but. Oh, I, 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 I can barely watch it. At, I don't even know if I – yeah, I, it's hard for me to watch all this stuff as well. And I thought to myself, I want, I want to find that person and oh. look – there you are right here. I, 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 I do this podcast. I speak about these things very, very bluntly because without – I honestly, I feel like if I didn't share the experience, strength, and wisdom and hope that I've gained, I would have wasted all the experiences. I, okay. I'm going to say one thing first and then I'm going to say something else, okay? Go ahead. I don't agree. Okay. You're allowed to stay alive just for yourself. Fair enough. If, all you, if, if the only reason was just to have – See, I'm a big coffee drinker, and literally, that's one of my all-time great pleasures. If that, for example, whatever that little tiny pleasure you have in life, that if that's the only reason, is if that's good enough for me? For any, I think that's good enough. You, you, you stay alive just for your selfish reasons. I have but, the Beach Boys. I have the Beach Boys pet sounds. Go ahead. Okay, good. And but the but the but the other thing is that you're going to save lives, and I and I have this corny, you know, the corny thing: you save one life, you save the world. Yeah. I, I do believe that you save one life, you save the world, but you're going to probably save countless lives because we're in a real crisis and people feel despair and our kids feel despair yeah. and they're isolated. They're isolated. And, and, and they were already isolated and then the pandemic isolates further. And then everybody thinks it's great now that we have zoom. Well, go ahead and keep isolating because I'm telling you, I know, I know. I've been saying this for a while now. We're in a pandemic of disconnection. Now, oh, you see, you got to write all this down. These are great terms. I used to joke about how um, social media before the pandemic, I joked around that social media was preparing humanity for space travel because we're preparing kids to just get used to living in little bubble, huh. you know, little huh. capsules. Huh. But and it was my joke. 
But now that we've had like such a catastrophe and the pandemic and everything accelerated all this, it's not a joke anymore. I mean, no. honestly, it it is true in my opinion that we probably are preparing humanity for space travel and small crafts and blah, blah, blah. But the mental health, the fact that we only have life, and as far as many of us know, it's just the one life. The fact that somebody loses hope, this great gift, um, when there's so many pleasures ahead. And, you know, I was a pretty gloomy teenager myself. I was gloomy. I was just gloomy. That's all. And um, I have found so many joys in life when I've had so many bouts of depression in my life and moments of, you know, those types of like, childhood angst. And I'm, I mean, there was a time in my twenties, I was living in Paris. Can you imagine? I, I took off from college and went to live in Paris. Huh? And I remember feeling gloomy in Paris. Like, how do you feel gloomy in Paris? Goodness. <laughs> I mean, goodness gracious. I, I, I wish I could take that young Marilee and say, babe, babe, you're in Paris. <laughs> you're in Paris. Eat the damn baguette and stop it. Although I did eat the baguettes. I, I couldn't afford anything else, but I, I just, I just am so grateful that you're here, Jeff, and that you're going to be able to help so many people. I hope so. I try to look at myself as Johnny Appleseed, right? Because the thing about Johnny Appleseed that was so great was he just threw seeds around and he didn't know if they grew or not, right? He had no idea. He He didn't have Instagram. (laughs) Exactly. If he had, he would have seen everybody's, you know, apple, apple trees. He would have been like, well, look at mine. Look at mine. And they would have done like that sideways pose. Next that, to concept, apple that concept he was giving without the expectation of reciprocity. Because the reciprocity would have been him sitting under the tree. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a great analogy. He gave without the I, expectation of reciprocity. Beautifully That's put. To do. That's what we're supposed to do. And that's what's so great about him. And the reciprocity thing is so great too because – or the, the, the seeds is great too because guess what? If it doesn't take – Oh, well, here's another one, right? Yeah. And again, if you just, if just one takes, it was all worth it. I will, t- I will tell you this. This is something that I've been doing um, about two years ago. I realized that the kid, when the, when the pandemic hit, I realized that these poor kids were working behind counters at like Starbucks and McDonald's and, you know, they're getting screamed out over about masks and stuff. And I'm like thinking these kids aren't virologists. They're not bouncers. Like what the hell's going on? So yeah. I thought, you yeah. know, my form of resistance is going to be this. I'm going to try and get a smile out of somebody in 30 seconds. See what happens. If not, oh, well, Johnny Appleseed. And I can do it. I'm engaging enough, I know. And I hit about 80% of the time. And I'll make some crack about something on you know, the wearing, some shirt or something. And I'm pretty good with it. And I got to laugh. The end. That's how I'm pushing you're back. Like spreading, the you're spreading good vibes. You're spreading good vibes. It's not just that, though. I look at it as a form of fighting. It's a form of aggression in a weird way against oh. what's happening now. It's my form of like the French resisting mm. against the Germans. I'm serious about this. So am I. So am I. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm, you and I are speaking the same language, I Jeff. I want to hear my joke at the Can't pandemic. Can't Everybody wait. would just stare at me like at Rite Aid. I go, I'd be standing in line with all these really angry people, and I would just start saying, "Don't you just hate pandemics?" <laughs> <laughs> I would say, don't you just hate pandemics? And, you know, half the time, nobody even, they were just like, what? <laughs> I actually like that joke. I think it's one of my better ones. It's a great joke. Not as great as my favorite joke of all time, which is simply this. And it really is, I think, actually, it has all the keys to the universe locked in with it, locked within this dumb joke. And that is, have you heard what comes with the Buddhist vacuum cleaner? What? No attachments. <sighs> Come on. Love it. Ba-dum-bum-tsh. Right? I mean, but that's that's the thing. That's kind of, in my opinion, at least, that's the thing. 
know? uh, beautiful. At any rate, beautiful. listen, I want to, I would, I really want to keep this up, and I'm going to, but I want to just flip it, just kind of curve it a bit back again. To I mm-hmm. do want to talk about this. So mm-hmm. I know that uh, you and your lovely uh, husband uh, are working on mm-hmm. this sex, greed, money, and murder, and chicken mm-hmm. fried steak thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you tell me. Yeah, it has to be said in a in a, in a Texan accent. FYI. Okay, me? Okay, hang on. Uh, tax, greed, money, murder, and chicken feed, uh, chicken fried steak. You gotta elongate the last bit. Try one more time. Hang on. Uh, sex, greed, murder, and chicken fried steak. Nope. Cut. Go again. You forgot the money. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> this is great content. Sex, greed, money, murder, and chicken fried steak. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Tell me about that. Oh, it's just so great. Well, you know, we both share a love of true crime. And, you know, when we met a gazillion years ago, uh, we both read those little paperbacks, those true crime stories sure. uh, and rule type stuff. And we've always been obsessed. We were on the front end of our obsession with true crime. Um, and, uh, you know, long story short, Reinhardt wrote a screenplay that was on the Hollywood blacklist several years ago. And, you know, it was optioned here and there with different people. And I've always said to him, that's the one I want to produce. That's the one I want to produce. And, you know, I was sitting back a lot with my kids at home, raising them. And the timing was just perfect. We found co-producers in Texas. We found the uh, funding. We have the script. I live with the writer. (laughs) We kind of polished it up with our development team and it didn't need polishing, but, you know, a little tweak here and there. Sure. And uh, we're making the movie. It's the most exciting thing. I'm thrilled about it. I've It's it's my favorite. Reinhardt has two true crime scripts that um, I love and that we're going to make. The, the next one we're going to make right after Sex Greed is about the uh, Cotton Club murder. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Reinhardt is a brilliant writer. He shares the same obsessions. Uh, we have people that we're working with. And we're really excited. The case, Sex Greed, is a case that was the O.J. Simpson of Texas. He was a billionaire oil uh, tycoon, you know, family money. And um, he murdered a bunch of people. And uh, he, there were eyewitnesses. And he murdered a child. And it, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, I mean, he, he got off. And, you know, maybe somebody will say, but Marilyn, he got off. He didn't do it. Well, uh, my opinion is he did it. Right. Okay, that's my opinion. But well, it's a I, great story. It's fascinating. And it's about, you know, again, there were a lot there are a lot of interesting facets to the case. You know, they put people on trial, they put the ex-wife on trial, so to speak. She wasn't the greatest character. And uh they had the racehorse Haynes, right. a certain type of Johnny Cochran character in Texas, big time defense attorney. You know what they say? Justice what? is great if you can afford it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's a great, it's going to be a great movie. I can't wait. I have, I'm going to, I got to wrap this up, but wait, wait, time out. Hang on. Just hang tight. Cool your jets, Turbo. Cool your jets. Here's the deal. I'm going to ask you one last question here, but then after that, we're going to kind of quote unquote, say goodbye. And then, uh, and then let's talk afterwards, right after we quote unquote, say goodbye deal. Fab. Okay, here we go. Here's a big question. I love asking this question. The I basically only have two questions on this podcast, really, and they're all the same. One is that first one, what's the first thing that inspired you? Here's the last one. As a creative, when do you know you're done? That's a really great question. When someone needs it. (laughs) I love that. That's it. Uh, Beautiful. That's it, Jeff. Beautiful. Never done, babe. 
Beautiful. You're never done. Everybody has a different answer to that question. My favorite, I always say, is when I ask Neil Young that question, he goes, when I'm done. No, okay. Okay, Mr. Yeah, Young. God bless him. God bless you, Neil Young. And God bless you for doing this fantastic interview, my friend. You are an amazing woman, as is your amazing husband. Well, you know what? We're all, we're all everything. I feel you. Uh, but you're pretty, you're pretty <laughs> darn amazing yourself, Jeff. Amen. Well, listen, uh, pretend to say goodbye. And then, uh, and then uh, you have my number. Give me a call back after this hangs up. Deal. Deal. Okay. Uh, pretend goodbye. Goodbye. Bye, Jeff. Click.